Alrighty. Do do do. We got both, both of them. Y'all set, Fridge? Oh yeah, all good. The Tampa Bay Lightning are back, and so are the CarCasts. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the pod slash CarCast. Merrick alongside Friedman and Amal Delich. The Tampa Bay Lightning jump right back into this one. We're going to get to the bolts. We're going to talk about what's next for the Oilers. Some coaching discussion as well a little bit later on. We'll talk about Boston. We'll talk about Dallas. But up first, 4-1 to one is the final. A big game by the Tampa Bay Lightning. A huge game from Andre Palat. And now some questions about the New York Rangers, specifically around injuries to a couple of key centers. But I don't want to bias the jury here, Elliot. Your thoughts, wide brush, uh, tabla rasa, blank slate. Your thoughts on this game? My thoughts on this game are that we have seen this movie before. Like, think of a movie, whenever it's on TV, Jeff, you have to watch it. I have many of those movies. So pick one. Robocop. I can never turn off RoboCop. That is a great choice. <laughs> I have to say RoboCop. We're talking about the original, not the remake. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the original RoboCop. Whenever I see RoboCop, that's it. it I'm, I'm sticking with that speed bump. See, one of those movies for me is Roadhouse. Oh, yeah. Roadhouse, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's the late, great Patrick Swayze and Sam Elliott as bouncers with the late, great Ben Gazzara as one of the all-time bad guys. And whenever that movie is on, I have to watch it. And Jeff Healy performs in that one, too. Yes. I was a big Jeff Healy fan back in the day. Great movie. Yes, Jeff Healy performed there, too. Anyway, to me, this is a movie I've seen before many, many, many times. Early in a series, the lightning don't look great. They look vulnerable. And then eventually their experience and their default to playing smart hockey takes over i thought they smothered the rangers in this game they gave new york very little almost nothing until third period slash late in the game and that was the kind of game we have seen the lightning play over and over and over again en route to two stanley cups it was you know like i said i, I i've seen that movie before many times the thing is, I couldn't help, and Kevin, you know, uh, talked about this in the post game briefly. I can't help but thinking, you're the New York Rangers after this game. You've just lost four to one. The series is tied. And how much are you thinking, man? Game three, we had this team down two to nothing. We had all the momentum. Calls were going our way. We were scoring power play goals. What just happened? There is a discipline that Tampa has, and when it takes over, good luck. But here's the thing about the game, too. You know, after 40 minutes of play, I mean, I agree, Tampa smothered them. But it wasn't as if they were peppering Igor Shosturkin. It wasn't as if it was a million shots, and it was, you know, they they dragged him into deep water. wasn't like game three. Shots on goal were 22-15 in favor of the Rangers after 40 minutes of play. And I, I come away from the second period going, I feel like Tampa's in charge here. But I'm not exactly sure why when I look at something like the shots on goal. What happened here, Freach? I don't see with Tampa, I don't look at shots on goal. I look at quality of chances. I look at what are they allowing you to have. The opening of the series, the first two games of the series, those were played at the Rangers' pace. In game two, to me, John Cooper looked really worried. He was sitting there saying, we're in trouble here. We're in big trouble here because the tempo was at the pace, the Rangers. To me, it's not about shot counts. It's about the tempo. It's about the pace of play. And I thought the first two games were Rangers. To be honest, even when Tampa had 50-something shots in game three, I looked at it and said, I don't think the Rangers have too much of a problem playing that pace of a game. This was the first one tonight in this series, game four, where I looked at it and said, this is the pace of play and the type of play that Tampa likes. You may get your shots. You you may look at the count and say, okay, it's close, but they're allowing you only the chances that they want to allow you. They're suffocating the middle. They're cutting off your entries and exits. This, to me, was a Tampa dictated game Mm -hmm. and it's the first one in the series yes i know tampa outshot them in game three but i thought the rangers could handle that speed of game this is the first time i saw a true trudging fest 
and that's the way Tampa likes it. So this one was a lot about Andre Palat. I want to get to the Rangers injuries in a second, but I want to get your yeah. thoughts on Andre Palat. So the first goal, Patrick Maroon scores to third of the playoffs, making it one nothing Tampa. That's fourth line versus fourth line. You know, not the best look for Rooney, Reeves, and Braun no. uh, on that play. Great play by Zach Bogosian going no to the net. Maroon Thanks taps twice. it in. Cross a Zach Bogosian across the New York line to the right circle. Knifing in front! Shots save made! Rebound score! Mm. Pat Maroon! Well, there was one of those rebounds we were talking about, Phil, and Maroon. Like, that's just fourth line versus fourth line, and Maroon goes to the net hard, as does Zach Bogosian. And then it seemed as if Andre Palat went to work. Yep. The great pass to Kucherov that you guys highlighted. And Palat will make a steal. Two on two across the blue line, left circle. Feed stamp goes high slot. Holds. Put it in front. Save made on Kucherov by Shesterkin. Sprawling on his belly. Good row the other way. Bounces it to the lightning line. A quick up. Ruda for... Palat, up the middle, Kudrov, maybe a step in front, holds, shoots, SCORE! Kudrov! Kudrov has made it 2-0! Uh, the great work on the Stamkos goal. Palat fumbles the puck a bit, stays with it. Palat right circle, Palat, shoots, save made, rebound, SCORE! At the side of the net, Stamkos! Then Palat puts in the empty netter. Andrew Miller right point, shoots, blocked by Palat! Back the other way, toward the open net, SCORE! Andre Palat scores the empty netter, his third point tonight, and the Lightning go up 4-1. I look at him as Hosa Light or Mini Hosa. Or- they stole that tonight. Did you notice that? They called him Hosa Light. Oh, did they? Well, hey, listen, greatness yes. borrows, but genius steals. I, I don't mind surrendering that one. How did you feel about Palat's game tonight? Because to me, this whole thing was about him. So the great Stan Fischler, I remember one of his books, he wrote about Bob Ganey. And he called them invisible until he kills you. Hmm. And I always liked that phrase. I thought it was an excellent turn of words. And I just thought that when I saw Palat tonight, it reminded me of that invisible until he kills you. And uh, he certainly did that to the Rangers tonight. This whole thing, Palat is amazing to me. Like, We've all sat here and wondered how can the Lightning keep all these guys? And yes, there are players that you have to lose at certain times, like they lost their entire third line. But they've always found a way to keep him, and they've always found a way to keep Kalorn. And I always look at Palat and I say, until he's gone, I'm always going to believe they're going to find a way to keep him. I could be totally wrong about it this time, but until he's gone, I always think they find a way. You know, there's a great book um, that I read a couple of years ago by Annie Jacobson called Surprise, Kill, Vanish, uh, The Secret History of the CIA's uh, Paramilitary Efforts. And when you're talking about Stan Fischler's great line, I couldn't help but think about that one right away, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. Anyhow, Palat's work, again, we've talked about this with with other players, but it's really subtle and it's really sudden uh, as well. Like, he's just such such a supremely skilled player. The Rangers injuries. Yeah, We started off the game with no Ryan Strom. And then throughout the game, we saw after the Victor Hedman hit on Philip Hedl, he exited the game, did not return, upper body injury there. Listen, we saw, you know, Cop fill in on center. Uh, Rooney goes up a little bit higher in the lineup than maybe he's, he's used to. And it just wasn't there. Like the cohesion for the Rangers, you could tell, you know, right away wasn't there. You know, if these two injuries are lengthy, this one's, I don't want to say it's a dagger for the Rangers, but this will be a tough one to overcome. No question about it. We were watching the Strom injury before the show tonight, and we were trying to guess what it was. I thought it might have been his knee, Mm -hmm. but I think Kevin and Kelly were right. They saw the way they bent over. They think it's a groin. And I would tend to believe that's what it is. Now, we ran it in the post-game hit that ran overnight on Sportsnet, but our cameras caught a shot of Strom in the warm-up, and you could see him grimacing. Mm. He looked like me after 17 minutes on the Peloton, <laughs> that, and he'd only been out there for a couple of minutes. And, you know, he tried to play and you could tell he really wanted to play, but it just wasn't allowing him to go. And, you know, at this time of year, that's, Sometimes it's easier to have a broken bone as opposed to some kind of muscle injury. And that is certainly the case here for Strom, at least. And so I don't know where this goes. 
You know, one thing I forgot, Jeff, is that if this series goes to game seven, there's a two-day break. Yeah. You know, game yeah. six is Saturday and game seven is Tuesday. So if the Rangers, you know, get it to that point, maybe it helps some of these guys. Heedle, it's kind of an innocent play. It's a big man hitting him, though. That's the thing. Hedman is big, dude. Oh, of course. And when we watched the replay, Kelly wondered actually if it was his wrist and he jammed it into the boards but you're right it's it's a big man hitting him and it all of a sudden you lose two centers and as you said you're completely out of whack you're sitting here and you're saying our lines are all mixed up the kid line which has been really good at energy for us it's now broken up people are not in the roles they've done very well with in the playoffs and i just don't think you can afford to lose too many centers and now if you're the rangers all of a sudden you're down two. it's a huge problem and the other problem obviously was tampa was disciplined and didn't give them much power play time and if tampa is going to be like that the rangers are going to have to find a way to be much more successful five on five jeff now let me ask you a question sure ron's looking at them 18 games in 35 days that's a lot. I heard that, yeah. He, he thinks the exhaustion is finally getting to them. Buy that or no? Uh, I don't know. I, I tend to think at this point of the playoffs, everyone's just going on adrenaline. But I could see that. That's a lot of hockey um, for a team. And let's not forget, too, you know, uh, you always want a gift along the way. Like, it's hard to take series right to the ends, right? Yes. And what do we just see? The New York Rangers coming off uh, a seven-game series against the Carolina Hurricanes. They rode that momentum into the first game, into the second game as well. And then, inevitably, you do get that crash. And the fact that Tampa has had, what was Tampa's rest? Like nine days for each? Yeah. You, you wonder if that starts to play off. Like, the first game, okay, you know, it's going to be a little bit rusty. You understand the outcome there. But then the fact that the one team was a little more rested, I never felt that it showed up in the first game because rust is a factor. I always felt that rest, when the other team's in a, in a groove of one day on, one day off, you know, that catches up to you midway through a series and the rest for the seven to nine days shows up later in the series. So maybe there is something to what Ron was talking about. And I heard that and that's the first place that my brain went to. Rangers seven game series against Carolina. And as we all know, Tampa took care of the Florida Panthers in four. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because I've never believed that rest shows up in game one. I've always felt that it shows up midway through a series. So maybe he's on to something and we're seeing that now. I still think we have at least one big, at least one big Shesterkin performance for us in this series. Oh, yeah. He's not done with the Lightning. No, uh, he's not. Uh, but we're almost done with this conversation. But not before I ask you about Frank Vetrano versus Brandon Hagel. Not just the fight, but the beaking that wouldn't stop in the oh, penalty yeah. box as well. And all of this, by the way, right in front of Ric Flair which we just have to point out on the it. podcast. We loved every minute of it. He loved it. Yeah, he thought it was great. Petrano attempting that over oh, the glass. They're going to fight. fight. Here we go. Didn't expect that. Petrano and Hagel dropping the gloves here. Big rights coming in oh, from yeah. Hagel. Hagel scrappy. <laughs> that was right on cue with the Ric Flair mention. There you go. <laughs> You don't see that too often. Vetrano gives him a little shot. Hagel gives him one back, and Hagel trying to get the home crowd into it here. We know he's dealing with an injury. And seems to be skating better every day. There he is right there. Ric Flair likes that a lot. <laughs> What'd you make of the scrap? Hagel had a good interview with uh, Dave where he basically yes. said that's hockey, which is the answer you're all kind of wanting here. It was a pretty snoozy second period until you and Vetrano dropped the gloves. Uh, what was in that? What, what led to that? Because had every player come off the ice and say, way to go, Hags, on their way to the dressing room. Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, obviously we could have cleaned it up a little bit better. I think they kind of took over momentum. Uh, I cross-checked him a little bit after the whistle and he said, let's go. So uh, say less. I thought he was making fun of Vetrano's lack of a beard, yeah. which was pretty funny to me. This is the entertainment business, right? And it was entertaining. It looked to me like Hagel was going at Vetrano about his lack of his Wolfman style beard. And Vetrano yes. was going at him for doing the pump up the crowd showboat thing after a 50-50 fight. 
that kind of looked like the dynamic to me. I wouldn't say you're wrong, and I've got no problem with either guy doing that. And that was a fun moment, but, but tonight was all about Andre Palat. Just uh, an outstanding performance. The other story, which goes back to Monday, is the Colorado sweep of the Edmonton Oilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arturi Lekkinen, the overtime hero. We will spend more time talking about Colorado, but as you're driving home, let's park some time here to talk about what's next for the Edmonton Oilers. So you're the Oilers, and I don't even want to say Ken Holland. Maybe I'll take it all the way up to Daryl Cates, but you're, quote-unquote, the Oilers. What's the most pressing issue right now, you know, as you wake up Tuesday morning and say, we don't have to go to the rink for anything? Well, the first thing to me, Jeff, is sorting out Jay Woodcroft and Dave Manson. Ken Holland always said, I'll deal with this at the end of the season. Well, unfortunately for Edmonton, it's the end of the season. And now you've got to deal with this. So I I think that's the first thing. Is there any chance he's not the coach? Is Edmonton going to lock this down as I would assume they want to? I understand that, you know, the top players on the Oilers, they like Woodcroft a lot. Generally, I think if your best players are buying into what you're selling, you're in a good spot. It's clear that McDavid liked playing for him. It's clear that Dreisaitl liked playing for him. I think if you've got those two guys on side, and I've got no reason to believe that they don't, then Woodcroft is going to be your coach, and that's question number one. You sort that out. Mm -hmm. You know, One of the things I'm curious about here, and we talked about it during the season, Paul Coffey has been around the team for a little bit, and I'm just wondering where this is all going to shake out. I think the owner, Daryl Cates, when things were going very poorly, Coffee showed up on a trip to Florida and he kind of stuck around. And I think Daryl Cates really trusts Paul Coffee. He believes in Paul Coffee's intuition and he listened to what he had to say. So now that this is all over and Coffee kind of stuck around, even as things turned for the better, my only question is is there anything to all this? You know, is there any question that? Hey, about the direction, I assume it's everything is still Ken Holland's call. I've got no reason to believe anything different than that. But just the fact that coffee's been around, you know, just where does this all sit? Is he going to continue to stay around? Is he still part of the decision-making group? Is this in Holland's hands? I'm just wondering for clarity's sake, Mm -hmm. is there any reason to believe that Kate feels there has to be a different decision-making process. I don't have any indication right now it does, but this is one thing that's been kind of in my head since he first arrived, and where is this going, if anywhere? So that's my next question. Well, I would imagine that we'll get that answer fridge within a couple of weeks as teams now, as they bow out of the playoffs, turn their attention fully and completely to the NHL draft, Mm -hmm. which comes up in early July in Montreal. So I would imagine that we would have some type of clarity on what's next, probably within the next couple of weeks, wouldn't you say? Like, this will probably be pretty obvious soon, no? That's what I would assume. I would think so. I would, yes, I agree. Okay, so to a few players. First of all, Leon Dreisaitl. Now, he came shy of saying exactly what the injury was, choosing rather to say... Um, I'm sure everyone... Where a lot of people saw the video, saw the clip, what happened. Um, I'm sure you can figure out what type of injury it was by watching the clip. Now, I've never had a high ankle sprain. I have. So could you imagine playing on one? Because that's what, again, I'm not a doctor, and he's asked us to throw darts and figure it out ourselves. My guess is that's what it is. If he's saying you can see it on TV, that's what it is. I was curious, Jeff, if there was more than one injury. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you're playing like he is, you overcompensate for the injury, which is perfectly normal, and you hurt something else. Yeah. Or he was taking so much abuse and anything else get hurt. You know, he had 32 points in 16 games. Remarkable. When I had a high ankle sprain, I could barely make it from the bed to the couch. <laughs> 
Well, there is a little bit of a discrepancy in athleticism between yourself and Leon Dreisel. Yes, I know. I'm a, I'm a better athlete than he is. In full disclosure, the same discrepancy exists between myself and Leon Dreisel. So I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here. But honestly, that was a performance for the ages. Watching him get back to the bench after shifts, Elliot, yeah. was painful. You could see, although it's, it's funny too, whenever they cut to him on the bench, you could tell he was in agony. Mm-hmm. but it almost seemed as if he wanted to cover it up the whole time. Like everybody knows what the score is. Everybody knows this guy is in immense pain here and, you know, Calgary's not making it easier tapping the ankle and, you know, Josh Manson isn't making it any easier chopping the ankle when he no. went down either, but still like everybody knows that this guy is hurting, but he's really doing his best, even though it's really obvious to still try to hide it. You know, I talked to Louis DeBrusque on the radio show on Tuesday, and he brought up a great point. He said, you know, there's not a better stationary passer in the NHL than Leon Dreisaitl. Like, just feed him the puck, and he can find a pass. Like, he, first of all, he's got that big canoe paddle of a blade. And the interesting thing, remember, um, when I first saw it, I was in Quebec City for the Memorial Cup, and I was with Todd Warner, and we were looking at his stick, and Todd was bringing up the point, you know, I've seen other players with, you know, big, long, long blades, but the interesting thing about Dreisaitl is, is, you know, he can use the puck at different points in the blade as well, mm-hmm. which is a, such a unique skill. Like he can play with it, pass with it in tight on the heel, down to the toe, in the middle. Like he can play with the puck all up and down the blade. That's one of the unique things that Leon Dreisaitl possesses that other people, you know, if they have a big blade, just can't. And we really saw that on display. Like how many times did someone throw Leon Dreisaitl a pass? You knew he wasn't going to start to sprint but he made a beautiful bullet pass tape to tape from a standing position. It's like at times it looked like Leon Dreisaitl was doing elevator practice, just standing there, but feeding amazing passes. I thought that was a great line by Louis. He's a great stationary passer. We saw that on display. That's all great stuff. I will say I got a good laugh out of a buddy of mine sent me a picture of a bubble hockey player and said, that is Dreisaitl's stick. (laughs) <laughs> it is it's true yeah i remember, I I remember, I remember seeing it when yes. he played Kelowna at memorial cup i'm like look at the size of this thing this thing is insane look you know what it was like you can always tell when the trainer comes over does the player look at the trainer and dry wouldn't even look at him no. he was like get out of my face like i'm not even listening to you you know i made the comparison briefly on tuesday night in the ranger game to ryan lindgren mm. lindgren and dry are the faces of these playoffs how many times has lindgren had to go back to the room and you're oh. like we're never gonna see him again <laughs> and he's back out on the next shift and Drysdale was like, you can't even take me off the bench. I'm not even looking at you. It's like from Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy, blah, 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 blah. I am not listening to Jeff. I am not listening to Jeff. He was great. McDavid was great. If you're an Oiler fan, it took longer than you would have liked. But this was everything you dreamed about when McDavid got drafted and it became pretty clear that Drysdale was a really special player. This This is what everything that you dreamed about. So then here becomes the question, what do you need for finishing touches now that we've seen this team go to the conference final? And, you know, remarkable, if you go back to those uh, those meetings Oilers Brass had in, in California, if we would have said, hey, this is a team that's going to be in the conference final, you know, you'd probably be laughed out of the room. But here the Oilers were. And one of the big questions revolves around the future of Mike Smith and Mike Smith and his media availability you know, didn't exactly come out and emphatically state that he's coming back and sort of leaves it open to, you know, the possibility that he might. How do you see the Oilers goaltending situation playing out? I know we've talked about the Oilers and goaltending all season long and it might annoy people, but here we are. It's still an issue. The thing with Smith I look at is that's the emotion of a defeat, right? And the next day, I'm not saying it's impossible he retires. But I think Mike Smith is a really emotional guy. He's wired that way. And I'm sure he looks at the giveaway and says, even though he was mad at the referee about the puck hitting that, I would guess that Mike Smith, knowing him the way I've gotten to know him a little bit at least, is that that's a very emotional thing for him. 
and just the overall situation of the way that series went, I think the emotions of it that he would feel he, he wasn't as good as he could have been had to be better for the team. You know, it's not all his fault, but I think he takes a lot of blame for it. And I wouldn't be surprised if that has him at a very low point mentally and saying, you know, this hurts too much and I'm not sure I can go through that again. Now, I did speak to someone who knows him a bit today. I said, is this serious? And they said, look, we're a day after they got knocked out. You know, let it breathe and, you know, we'll see where we are. Is it possible? Yes. But nobody's going to let Mike Smith make a decision when he's emotional. So when it comes to his retirement, I guess it's possible, but I think it's too soon to really know one way or the other unless his body tells him he can't play anymore. I think the Oilers have some really interesting decisions to make. Kane's a big one, and there still has to be a hearing here to figure out his whole contract situation. We don't know where this is going to go, and I assume now this is going to be put back on the front burner because the Oilers are out. And everybody has to know here by the start of free agency what Kane's situation is. So, A, the Sharks can need to know how much cap room they have. And also, Kane needs to know what his contract situation is. Is he a free agent or not? And so, all of this stuff has to be sorted out. But I think, too, can they clear cap room? I think that's going to be a conversation for them, too. How do they go about it? You know, the Pugliarvi thing is really interesting. You know, today Dallas signed Gurionov, and he was one of the players that people were wondering what would his situation be with a qualifying offer. And he signed a one-year deal at the qualifying offer number. What's Pugliarvi going to do? What's Edmonton going to think about Pugliarvi? Because, you know, I've been talking to a couple people about him. His ARB case is good. His arm case is very good. You know, how do the Oilers feel about that? How does Pugliarvi feel about that? I think that's going to be a really interesting decision in terms of where everybody feels the right path is here. I think the other thing, too, is the Oilers have to be deeper up front. You know, there's no question about that. I thought that was a huge difference between them and the Avalanche is the depth in their forwards. And they have to be able to find some good bargains who can play in their bottom six. That's going to be a huge, huge thing for them because unless you think I'm wrong, Jeff, I really thought forward depth became a big issue in this particular series. It became pretty obvious. Like a few things became pretty obvious too. One, Colorado was able to do what we all thought Calgary was going to be able to do and that was slow down the Oilers in the neutral zone. And two, we knew that the offense was going to be on display, but defense was on display for the Colorado Avalanche and also, and I think a lot of this is led by JT Comfer, who had a tremendous series. Yeah, Their bottom six was just flat out better. Like now, they, they had some veteran guys and you know, Cogliano and Darren Helm and stuff and, and guys that have, you know, guys that you look at and you say, okay, this players are going to show up come playoff time, but still their, their bottom six was better. One of the things I, I wonder about here with the Oilers, with the emergence of Evan Bouchard, and you might tell me that it's too soon to make this decision, mm-hmm. but I, I wonder with the emergence of Evan Bouchard and you know his ability on the power play to be a shooting threat unlike Tyson Berry, because mm-hmm. I'm thinking of ways that Ken Holland can make cap space here like we all are. Mm-hmm. Does that make Tyson Berry expendable? If you have someone that could take that power play spot. Now, can he distribute like Tyson Berry? No, but he can move the puck and he can shoot. You have McDavid and Dreisaitl on your power play. I know. They can distribute it. And he's a shooting threat. Not that he's got like the big bomb that you need, but he gets pucks through. And you might say it's too early to make that decision right now. I don't think it is. But I think it's on the horizon. I wonder if Bouchard, you know, forces Edmonton's hand on Tyson Berry here. I think it's possible. It's one of the things I've looked at. I do think you're at a point next year where you want Evan Bouchard to be your top power play quarterback. I do think that. And to me, just this is off the top of my head, Jeff. Mm -hmm. We've talked all year long about Seattle's going to be looking to create offense. Yep. Tyson Berry, to me, you know, he doesn't have a long-term deal. To me, he's the kind of player that Seattle could really use. I see a fit there if that's what the Kraken and the Oilers want to do. I agree with you completely. I think you you have to start next season, I believe, looking at it right now, 
with Bouchard as number one on your power play. Okay. Again, we'll get to the Avs in the uh, the podcast to come. Okay. So I have to tell you, Jeff, I got a, a funny call from someone at the NHL today. Okay. I want to talk to Oilers fans here for a couple seconds on the podcast because I know a lot of them are not very pleased these days. So I got a call from someone at the NHL today and he was kind of laughing and he said, you know, he was, he was looking online and he was looking at social and he, he was saying, you know, boy, the Oilers fans are unhappy with you guys right now. And I said, yes, I know. And he said to me, do you remember 2017? And I, I go, what specifically about 2017? And he said, when Anaheim complained about you, and I had totally, totally forgotten about this. So in 2017, you'll remember that the Oilers beat San Jose in the first round, yep. and they played the Ducks in a superb seven-game series awesome. in the second round. Like, really a great series in, in the history of my time at Hockey Night in Canada. And... I had forgotten about this, but in the comeback on Catella, there was the play where Kessler held Cam Talbot's pad. Oh, yeah. And the Oilers fans will tell me if I'm wrong about the details, but I know the general situation here. But I believe that was the goal that tied the game and sent it into overtime. But remember, there's still a challenge left on both benches, and there may have been goaltender interference. Well, you've got the last minute, so this one will get looked at. But the officials right now haven't even necessarily made their ruling. All kinds of traffic. The bouncing puck that Latestu's not able to get out. The traffic in front. you got Kessler on one side. Talbot gets knocked down. And through the five hole on his birthday, Ricard Raquel with time ticking down. Let's have a look. Where is Corey Perry? Where is Kessler? Perry ended up knocking him further down. And wouldn't you believe that, of course, Corey Perry in the thick of it. And Ryan Kessler basically at this point all over the top of the pad of Cam Talbot pushed there to an extent by Darnell Nurse, but happy to stay. And during the intermission, like initially we missed it. And I'm not blaming anybody. That happens from time to time in the craziness of a game like that. But in the intermission, someone sent me a note saying, check and see if there's an angle that shows Kessler holding Talbot's pad. There was someone who was at the game. We told Brian Spear to look for it, the producer, and he found it. And so I came on the air and I said, Kessler, like, I don't remember what I said, but it was basically something <laughs> like this. Kessler gets away with murder on this play. He holds Talbot's pad, and Anaheim scores to send it into overtime, and, of course, they won the game. Well, like a day or two later, somebody <laughs> called me from the league and said, oh, man, are the ducks steaming at you? And I said, I said what, what's the issue? And they go, well, they say that you're on the air on Hockey Night in Canada, and you are openly rooting for them to lose. You are biased because you're a Hockey Night in Canada commentator, and you are finding plays that will prejudice the referees against the Ducks. And I just started laughing. I said, he held his leg. He held his leg. And uh, the guy said, I know, but I, I just wanted you to know that you know this was out there. I didn't really care one way or the other. I felt very secure and this happens from time to time people accuse you of being biased you know i just said i don't really care like that they held his leg they got away with it they won the game what are they complaining about you know he called me up to laugh about it because this is a really tough series for edmonton like colorado's the better team whenever you sweep i think we all know it and we all see how special this colorado team has the potential to be but the one thing I do understand from the Oilers' perspective is it just seemed like every 50-50 call went against them. Like from the offside to the Kane play, which I don't think you can really complain about, but the offside, non-offside with McCarr, the one call I really disagreed with in game four was the Ryan slew foot that led to a power play goal laid for Colorado. I didn't like that one. But generally, as you saw, I agreed with most of the calls that were made and it all went against the Oilers. And I know it sucks. I know it sucks. Oiler fans. 
I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I called them honestly. And as I felt, and it was just funny like his other fans were upset. This guy called me today to remind me of, you know, the time when the docs came at me hard from the other side saying, you know, you want the Oilers to win and, and your blatant favoritism is unacceptable. It just shows you like, it's funny how things change and what's true one day isn't true the other. It's just wild times, I guess. I, I, I do feel bad for the Oilers fans because that was a tough way to lose. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's this grand conspiracy against them. I really don't. When things go wrong for your team as a fan, listen, you can't, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this. I mean, as a fan, you're powerless to control anything. Uh, you're in a very vulnerable position because your emotions are being controlled by a hockey team that you're at more than arm's length away. And it can be really yeah. frustrating and you need outlets to vent towards. And if that means you want to send an angry tweet to me over something that I tweeted or said, I think that's a lot healthier. And if it gives you a chance to blow off steam, then that's fine. I agree. To me, what's it? What's the phrase you always use for each occupational hazard? Yes. That's fine. If it helps you blow off steam, it's a very safe way to do it. Vent at me if you think I'm biased. That's fine. Get your flame yes. tweet, your whatever tweet at me. Go for it. If it makes you feel better as a fan, I don't mind. Elliot, I think you're you're probably the same way. I, whenever I get them, I say to myself, I hope this made that person feel better. I don't care. I can take it. I understand that if I stick my head up above a crowd, I should expect someone will throw a rock. I just hope that that is that person getting it out. And going on with their day. I'm, I'm fine with it. I'm glad you brought that up because I always do say that occupational hazard. I think there's a line that you, nobody needs to cross. But, hey, these people are why we're employed and they pay our salaries. Totally. And uh, we love you watching and we love you listening and we know you're pissed off. And if you have to send uh, an angry, non-over-the-line tweet that, or DM <laughs> that makes you feel better. Well, I got those too. <laughs> I got those too. Yeah. That's okay. It's tough. They, the longer, like we talked about it the other day, the longer you go, the more it sucks to lose. And totally. By the way, I loved McDavid on the breakaway day saying, Yeah, I mean, those lessons only really matter if you put yourself back in those situations. Um, you know, so obviously that's our focus uh, is to put ourselves back in, uh, in that position um, and use the lessons that, uh, that, uh, you know, we learned throughout the, our little run here. And, you know, put those two uh, to good work next year. That says to me, he's going to take about two days off and he's going to be training. You watch. It'll be like, stay off the ice. Okay, I'll just practice face-offs. And we'll just practice face-offs for a week. He might get 200 points next year. Yeah. He'll come back angry and possessed and he'll look at Gretzky records and go, Psh, whatever. Before we go to news, just one thing on Colorado. <laughs> yes. Cadre. Yes. So he had the surgery on Monday. Yep. And the final is either going to start the 15th or the 18th. Yeah. I think they're hopeful he's going to play. And I think he's hopeful he's going to play. Yeah. I think it just comes down to how quickly, how much recovery is made in the next week or so. <sighs> yes. And my thought about this one is, because like you, I'm looking at if I'm Colorado, if I'm Nazem Kadri, A, I want New York and Tampa to beat each other up for seven games. Mm -hmm. So A, they're softened up, whomever wins. And B, I get as much time to heal as possible. I just wonder about the ability, with that injury, I just wonder about the ability to shoot. Like, I think if he does come back, I think the passing will be fine. Obviously, the skating and all that, that's all going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if, like, if you're either New York or Tampa facing off against Colorado and Kadri's on the ice. Are you thinking in the back of your head, this guy's not going to shoot? Or this guy's not going to be able to shoot? And you can play him more effectively? Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know this, but this is just how I feel. Like if I'm playing against Kadri, I'm like, give this guy the shot all day. Because with that injury, I just wonder how effective that could be. That's the only thing that I wonder about. And nobody will go after the injury like no one went after Dreisaitl too. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of Boy Scouts out there. By the way, Jeff, I don't know if you heard, but there's like I'm on my street. I've stepped yeah. out of the car. I'm walking around. There's a raccoon somewhere near. Me. 
I heard it squealing. I think it was warning me I was getting too close. Oh, yeah? So if you hear me like running screaming in a couple of seconds, it's because a raccoon is chasing me. I do not like raccoons. Do you know what my uh, my wife and 12-year-old son saw today? What's that? And took a picture of it right down the street from us? A coyote? Oh, no, no. We see those all. They come up right beside the house. We see and hear them almost every day. A black bear. You got to be kidding me. You took a picture of it? Yeah, Claire took it from the car. Yeah. Oh, okay, from the car. Yeah, no, she like wander up and like, hey, TJ, stand next to the bear. No smile, thumbs up, kiddo. <laughs> yeah, black bear. So that's the difference between where you live and where I live. You're getting all freaked out about a raccoon, Fridge. Come on up here, pal. Come but, on. No, we have coyotes in our area, and we've gotten the warnings lately. Do not go anywhere near them. Yes. Because if they show up during the day, which they have been lately. During the day, hey, yes, really? Yes. Yes. See, we hear them at we hear them at night. No, we've been getting some during the day. One of my favorite things about living up here is hearing the uh, coyotes barking chain, which I believe is the mother of the pack barking out to check to see how many how many barks she gets back, and if she doesn't get the right number back, it's an indication they need to start mating because they've lost one. Oh, so that's why you're not supposed to kill coyotes. That's what I've read. Hmm. That if they don't get the right number back, uh-oh, it's mating time. We've lost one or two. Anyhow, how did we get sidetracked to this? Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, <laughs> Merlin Perkins. I love living up here, Freak. Come on, it's the best. Ah, Elliot, yet another start to another week. Now, other than the 32 Thoughts podcast, there's eh, not much else really to look forward to. Jeff, you are forgetting about Montana's Daily Deals. Their chicken wings are double-dusted in-house, cooked to a golden crispy finish, and they're half price on Mondays. Uh, half price? Half price every Monday and sauced however you like them. Well then, head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar for half price wings every Monday. The only other thing exciting about Mondays. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Bruce Cassidy fired by the Boston Bruins. Uh, the hunt for a new coach has begun. Your thoughts on on what we saw? This goes back to Monday and into Tuesday's press conference by uh, by Don Sweeney, the general manager. The thing that surprised me the most about it is that you know Cam Neely had mentioned when they got knocked out by Carolina that this was a possibility, but I think we kind of figured that as we got to this point in the playoffs that it was going to be okay that Cassidy was going to stay. I think one of the most interesting things about this is that the news came out that they agreed that they were going to replace at least one assistant coach. So it sounded like they were making plans to do things together. Right. Mm -hmm. And I heard it caught Cassidy totally by surprise. And, you know, maybe we'll find out that he didn't feel that way, but I know that there were people in the organization that were caught a little bit by surprise uh, because they were kind of under the impression that they were going to be moving forward as if he was staying as coach. You know, the other thing too, is you talk to other coaches and, and people who are around the business, you know, they know when someone's really in trouble, they can always sense it. And it just appeared around the league as if that window on Cassidy had closed that he was in trouble. So I think it really caught people by surprise. You know, it's interesting. There were a lot of rumors. There have been a lot of rumors that have come out about this. Mm -hmm. Number one, that Patrice Bergeron said he wouldn't come back if Cassidy was the head coach, and Sweeney denied that. He said that's not true. I do think there was a battle between Cassidy and some of the younger players. And, you know, the one thing I do think, and I, and I mentioned this to you on your show earlier on Tuesday, is the Larry Bird rule. And I've said this before. He quit his coach of the Indiana Pacers after three years even though the players wanted him to stay because he said the message gets lost after three years. And I think that it strikes me as clear that the organization felt that the message was getting lost and whether it's fair or not, that to me is the reason the Bruins did this. Now, I think there's a couple other things. Number one, I think Cassidy has rocketed very high in a lot of these other lists. I don't think he's going to have trouble if he wants to work, getting a job and getting a job fairly quickly. Who knows what Steve Eiserman's going to do, but there are a lot of people who seem to think that 
Cassidy will be a, a very serious contender in Detroit, for example, if not elsewhere. And this is the power of a good reporter like Fluto Shinzawa, the athletic, who's a, a great reporter, has had some stories that have really got Boston fans nervous about the future of David Pasternak. Mm-hmm. Fluto wrote a story last night. It was a really interesting story about how, according to one individual, Pasternak is upset that Tory Krug and David Krejci, who he was close with, were allowed to leave. And Pasternak didn't like that. And here's the quote. 88 had seen how Don has treated his two best friends. No chance he comes back with Sweens as GM. So, you know, that's a big deal. Yeah. I was under the impression that the Bruins were going to try to sign Pasternak to an extension, and that was their plan. And so I reached out to J.P. Barry, who represents Pasternak, and said, you know, this is a huge story. Like, what's the deal here? And he said that he called Sweeney this morning, and he called Pasternak this morning, and just to try to get to the bottom of everything. And he said that the plan is for everyone to sit down and discuss an extension early July and see where it goes. He said it would be premature to jump to conclusions uh, before then. But, I mean, uh, it's obvious this is a huge story, and Fluto's a good reporter. Now, the funny thing about our conversation is, I said, are you the kind of guy who calls Don Sweeney Sweens? Are you the source for this? Mm. And JP laughed, and he said, I played hockey against Sweeney because they're both from the same area of the country, out east. And I definitely did not call him Sweeney's. I called him Donnie. So I'm not the source for this story. So we can knock that one down, I guess. Anyway, I think the Bruins want to sign him. I think they want to sign him long term. If they can't, I think they're going to have to trade him. But right now, I think JP just tried to put cold water on that and said, just don't jump to any conclusions. But obviously, it's a story worth watching. And I'll tell you a couple other things. I don't necessarily think this is about a rebuild. Uh, They know they're going to be missing players like Marchand and uh, McAvoy and Grizzlick and potentially Riley into next season. But I don't think that means that sees them like throwing away the year. And depending on what happens with them down the middle, you know who's a guy I wonder who could be on their radar, Jeff? Mm. Vincent Trocek. See, I was going to say Nazem Kadri. Well, there's another one. Trocek makes some sense too. I can, I can see that. I look at Boston and I say, again, you know my rule about 100 games for goaltenders, but I think Jeremy Swayman's a good goaltender. Yep. And by the end of the season, Linus Allmark really had a good year with the Boston Bruins. I like their defense a lot. You mentioned McAvoy and Grizzlick injured, but the Lindholm deal I really like. My questions about the Boston Bruins, much like a lot of other people, are the forwards. And a lot of that is just being led by the Patrice Bergeron decision. And if he decides to go, then I wonder what the decision of this organization is. Like you can bring in, like Trocek is an unrestricted, Azim Kadri is an unrestricted, Claude Giroux. Uh, is an unrestricted like there are options for you here but i think like the rest of the team kind of looks okay they're just not going to be around for the first couple of months of the season and i think that that's the way they look at it if they believe all these players can come back if they can keep their head above water they believe that they could have a strong finish to the year i completely agree with you and you know the other thing too is like i rewatched on sweeney's press conference and to me Sweeney was kind of just saying the basics and there were a lot of people who were critical of him for just saying the basics, new voice. Yeah. I kind of got an impression just watching that, that I just think, and I could totally be wrong on this. I just look at a press conference like that and I'll say, I don't think that this was an easy one for the Bruins. I would love to know internally like sometimes the Bruins do that behind the B show and it's really good. And I like they do. We'll never see it, but I would love to see a behind the B of the conversations about this. Cause I'm betting not everybody agreed. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like this was one that had a lot of pulling and pushing internally before they decided on this direction. Here's the thing about the Boston Bruins. So he took over from Claude Julien. And at that time, yeah. that, that surprised a lot of people that they would 
um, I think it was during All-Star break that they fired Julianne and brought in Bruce Cassidy. And I know it caught a lot of people by surprise. One, that they were getting rid of Claude Julian, you know, longtime coach and Stanley Cup coach. But two, you know, going with someone who many thought might not ever be a head coach in the NHL again. That was going to be, you know, resigned to, oh, he's going to be a career AHL guy, or maybe he'll be an assistant coach in the NHL. But that's about it for Bruce Cassidy. And, you know, the talk around the Bruins at that time was the team was kind of, what was the phrase, playing stale at that point, that it needed something. And Bruce Cassidy brought that something. And the Boston Bruins became a more dynamic team again. And under Bruce Cassidy, they never missed the playoffs. Like, I'm with you. Like, when you look at the resume, and I can understand, you know, friction with players and th these things happen. I get that's That's the story of every team. I cannot imagine. But again, I'm not there. Guys like Flutus Shinzawa, Kevin Paul DuPont, like these guys are there. I can't imagine that it would have been unanimous. I don't believe it was. There's no way. Like to me, like Sweeney was just trying to get through that press conference. He knew that no matter what he said, people weren't going to like it. And he was just like, I'm just going to get through this. I'll tell you, one of the teams that I wonder about with Bruce Cassidy is the Dallas Stars. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you and I talked earlier today on the radio about Peter DeBoer and the Dallas Stars. What's your latest thinking on what's happening with that coaching search there? Well, I, I do think DeBoer is on their radar, and I do think he's someone they have legit interest in. But the whole Cassidy thing, it, it's just thrown everything into like, I don't know, chaos again, right? First Trotz and now Cassidy, right? Trotz, now there's two coaches that might be sort of halting the progress of teams signing coaches. Right, and Cassidy has to get his head around what he wants to do. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I didn't get a chance to really work at it Tuesday night because I was working the game, but I, I had several people tell me that they think DeBoer is a legit candidate of interest in, in Dallas, and now we'll see what this means. It's fascinating I mean, I could see Chicago being interested in Cassidy too. Hmm. I could see Vegas. Like, who wouldn't be? Like, look at his record. He, uh, you know, I, I could see Vegas being interested in Cassidy. I mean, we've got to wait to see how this all sorts out. Uh, this has thrown a wrench that a lot of people didn't really expect. You know, I think that one of the things that kind of happened here was everything was kind of settling down. Everybody knew who was kind of on Trot's watch. And they were starting to interview other candidates. Like one of the things I agree with you about is that I think Winnipeg waited a long time. I think they were trots only. And I'm just wondering if Winnipeg is beginning to suspect that it may not work out for them. And they started looking at some other candidates. Now you mentioned Tockett. Yeah. You mentioned Arneal. You know, we talked about Montgomery. And I do think Montgomery has a shot there. And, and we'll see where that goes Philly you know John Butchergross and Butchergross has a style when he's on to something and I first saw it last year I don't know if he's done it before but with the Taylor Hall trade when Hall got traded from Buffalo to Boston he tweeted out I think it was a picture of Taylor Hall and a Bruin and they tweeted out a picture of of Bjork and the number two I think it was actually Tupac Shakur that he tweeted out. And so that's the way he does it. I kind of like the style. It's cool. And the other day he tweeted out Tortorella and Gritty. And so because he's done that in the past, is that code for Tortorella's going to Philly. And what I've basically heard there is he's a very serious contender and it may happen, but that's premature, at least from the day he tweeted it. And so what I think is happening now, Jeff, is that I think in all these situations, it was Trot's watch, but now start to interview your other people in case, you know, he takes the year off or you're not the team. I think that's what teams are starting to do. And now all of a sudden, Cassidy's dropped on everybody. It might reset this process a bit. And through all of it as well, we're still waiting to see what happens with the Florida Panthers. That one's still very much out there. I'm surprised it's taken this long. I... I mean, I guess I shouldn't be because the Cassidy one's only two days ago, but I'm still surprised this one has 
has taken as long as it can. I mean, whatever issues you might have with Andrew Burnett, maybe. I mean, he was dropped in a difficult situation and he took you to the president's trophy, right? Okay, maybe maybe you felt he got out coached by John Cooper in the second round of the playoffs, but he's not the first guy that's happened to him. It's his first year as head coach. To me, I think there's a lot to work with here. <laughs> Chicago, Derek King, I think, is going to get interviewed there. We mentioned Todd Reardon in the last podcast. I think there's a few more people on their list. You know, I will say this for Boston. I know there's a lot of people wondering about Jay Leach. Jay Leach was their coach in Providence. He left to Seattle this past year. I had more than one person text me saying that that's someone to watch in this particular case. Not necessarily the favorite, but I I think a person of interest. It's intense out there. You know, Travis Green, I've heard his name for three or four of these spots. You know, I, I, I had someone say that if there's a change in Florida, you know, watch for Jeff Blashill. There's so many names flying around right now. I don't know what to make of it, really. Let's end on a couple of quick notes then. Uh, And you brought these both up on Hockey Night on Tuesday. Tough news for Chris Drieger of the Seattle Kraken. Uh, Seven to nine months, torn right ACL, uh, going back to the Canadian gold medal game against Finland. Like This was just a, a real drag, certainly for the player who you really feel for. And now for the Seattle Kraken, um, you know, Joey Decord now becomes uh, the number two uh, in that organization. You have a quick thought on either the Kraken or, or Chris Drieger here? Well, first of all, you feel, as you said, you feel terrible for Drieger, who was playing so well for Canada, getting injured in the gold medal game. But seven to nine months, that's a, that's a significant injury. Significant, significant injury. Marie-Philippe Poulain, listen, we've talked about her pre-Olympics and her future. Now, she still very much has a future on the ice. She wants to do one more Olympic cycle and compete for Canada. But also, uh, as we found out on Tuesday morning, uh, has been hired to work in the player development uh, department as a consultant by the Montreal Canadiens, something we had discussed uh, going back a couple of months, where Montreal essentially said, Whenever you're ready, Marie-Philippe Poulain, where doors open wide, we'll figure out what you want to do, how you want to do it. We just want you part of the Montreal Canadiens. And now her beak is in that fountain. Yes. Well, that was the player they wanted. And I think the Canadians knew that if Marie-Philippe Poulain was going to be on the roster of any NHL team in any kind of management position, they felt it had to be them. And I understand why they felt that way, because they're probably right about that. You know, Marie-Philippe Poulain should be, if she's going to work in the National Hockey League, a member of the Montreal Canadiens organization, simply because of from an it-feels-right-to-be-that-way standpoint. And it was always going to be about this. She made it very clear. Like, after Canada won the Olympics, I definitely believe she knew. She had a path to work for the Canadians on a full-time basis if she wished. And she made it clear that she wanted to play some more. So I think the Canadians said, you know, how can we make this work? It took some time, but they got it done. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy for them and for her. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Tim McAuliffe had her on his show, Tim and Friends, and he asked her about, can you coach the clutch gene? I think it's such a great question. <laughs> I think it's such a, can you coach that? And uh, I look forward to seeing her try because I would like to know the answer to that question. I think in some places it can be taught. And I think in other ways, I think people are wired the way they're wired and some of them are difficult to change. But I'm happy for her and I'm happy for them because Marie-Philippe Poulain, the Montreal Canadiens, is the way it should be. And I don't believe, uh, Jeff, that that will be the last high-profile female hockey star signing of the season. I think there will be more. I agree very much. So congratulations uh, to the Habs and congratulations uh, to Marie Philippe Poulin. Elliot, I want to end on um, the latest from Rick Westhead at TSN mm-hmm. um, hockey Canada executives um, may be asked to testify before a parliamentary subcommittee about the decision to settle uh, the lawsuit with, with eight uh, CHL players accused of sexually assaulting Uh, a woman in London. Yes. So Rick's report on Tuesday, as you said, the parliamentary subcommittee on Canadian heritage, which is uh, made up of MPs from several different parties. They could vote as early as Wednesday 
to begin asking Hockey Canada officials to testify about the now settled lawsuit, as you mentioned. That's a huge development. And if it happens, it's a really huge development. Uh, we have a reporter at Sportsnet who was working on the story, and, I, and I've been in communication with them. And it's pretty clear from some of the information that he has collected and some of the information that we've been working on that there's two real things here that are really going to potentially move it along. One was Canadian government intervention, which we've known since last week that could potentially happen. And now, judging from some of the quotes I read in Rick's story, is appears likely to happen. So that's one. And uh, the other is, you know, an NHL, NHLPA investigation. And there have been some conversations between the league and players about how this is going to be handled. Uh, the league has let the players know they intend to do one. But I still think they're working on uh, how this is all going to work. You know, it's going to happen at some point in time. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that, you know, because the report to this point is private and, you know, Hockey Canada officials have not said anything aside from the original statements that were made, it's a difficult story to get a handle on. So what were we all wondering could move it along here? were these two things and it looks as if both of these things are going to happen and one of them potentially sooner rather than later. So these are huge developments and we'll continue to monitor them as they occur. The story is far from over. Thanks for joining us once again on 32 Thoughts, the podcast.